Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. Before we get going this week, I just want to remind you that we have two episodes left until we kick into summer mode this week and next week, and then we get into a more relaxed schedule and the summer series where I'm going to have an episode out about every other week. I'm going to host a roundtable discussion on a singular topic. So there'll be multiple guests. We'll have a singular focus for each of those episodes. And I'm even thinking about potentially going live on Facebook, YouTube, and maybe Twitch for some of those episodes as well. So stay tuned for that. We'll get back to our regular schedule and format in September. Uh, I'll have more to say about the summer series at the end of the podcast and give you a listing of the topics uh, and and let you know kind of a little bit more detail about what's on the horizon. Uh, Thanks again for listening this week. And as always, a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. Your listening and following the podcast is greatly appreciated. And if you enjoy the podcast, please spread the word on social media or with your friends and colleagues. I'd really appreciate that. Today, my guest is my dear friend, my colleague, my co-author, Mandy Stolitz. We talk about what the past year has looked like uh, as far as her work as a high school math teacher in the pandemic. We talk about math instruction and assessment, and we talk about some exciting news for Mandy going into next year, so stay tuned for that. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to focus on a critical end-of-year question that so many teachers face and how to refocus ourselves on what truly matters. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My interview with Mandy Stalitz is coming up. But first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with a lesson about creativity from one of my favorite TV shows. Songland, which debuted in May of 2019, is a songwriting competition series on NBC, and it quickly became one of my favorite shows to watch. I have this thing about watching people who are experts in a field of which I know very little about. Like most people, I love music, but I know very little about music, so the show fascinated me almost instantly. Now, for those who don't know what the show's about, the show essentially stars three songwriter-producers. There's Shane McAnally, who's a most famous for uh, writing country hits. He's in the country music world. Uh, Esther Dean, who writes, you know, pop hits for artists like Rihanna and Katy Perry, among others. Uh, And then there's Ryan Tedder, who is the lead singer of One Republic, but also a songwriter and producer in his own right, who's produced songs for a number of different artists, including uh, Adele. So each episode, those three team up with unknown songwriters to create what they hope is the next big hit, and that song is going to be recorded by the guest performing artist. So they, you know, there's a fourth person or a band that joins the show each week. So the guest artists have, you know, they're they're pretty well known and uh, they're 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 you know top level artists in their own right. There's people like John Legend and Usher and Megan Trainer and others that are you know that have been on the show. So the show begins with four unknown songwriters auditioning their songs live in front of those producers and the guest judge or the guest star, I should say. Now, they immediately get feedback for their song's lyrics, the message, and the music. So they get, And they actually get specific feedback on how to improve the song. So even if they don't win the competition or win the show, they've actually already won because three or you know, four giants in the music industry have given them you know, this advice on how to make their songs better. So they come out of this, even if they don't get picked, they come out of it with uh, just some great advice on how to make their songs better. And I immediately became mesmerized 
by the whole songwriting process from front to back, the, the whole thing. How those producers could just hear a song once and immediately start thinking about how it could be shaped or how it could be improved. Like I said, the whole thing fascinated me. So, so why am I telling you this? Well, I'm telling you this because I've recently, in the last few weeks, been working with a few schools or school districts in my home province of British Columbia on what we call our core competencies, our focus on 21st century learning, our focus on competencies in our relatively new, it's not that new anymore, but our relatively new revised curriculum. There's a focus on helping students grow and develop in seven areas. And these core competencies include critical and reflective thinking, collaboration, communicating, personal awareness and responsibility, positive personal and cultural identity, social awareness and responsibility, and creative thinking. So I want to focus on the creative thinking part or creativity. So some of you might recall back in February, I was talking about how to assess creativity and I was talking about how to create criteria and assessing creative thinking is about assessing, you know, thinking with creative intent and going through that whole process. So in my work with the schools and, and the districts uh, recently, we were exploring this notion of creativity within the context of our core competencies. And it reminded me as I was sort of working with them and talking them through the whole process, I was reminded of what I learned from Songland. And what I learned was that there is a discipline and structure and process to being creative. So even though our core competencies are more about creative thinking and music, of course, is more about, you know, artistic presentation, it's still important to remember that creativity is not just a free-for-all and that there is structure and discipline behind that which is truly creative. Music is creative, okay? There'd be zero argument for that, right? I mean, no one would say music's not creative, so we've got that established. But just think about music for a minute. Think about the structure and the discipline that surrounds music or that's within music, right? Let's just start with the lyrics of a song. Now, of course, I don't know a lot about songwriting, of course, so I had to look this up, but uh, it's going to sound like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but, but most songs have a structure. They often have an introduction, like an intro, and that intro is kind of just building up to the beginning of the song. Then there, you know, of course, a song always has a number of verses, and the verses are essentially what the song is about. That's the story of the song. Then, you, of course, you have the chorus, and the chorus is... The peak of the song, that's where the theme or the title of the song, and that's kind of where the song kind of hits its, its peak. Songs often have a bridge, and that bridge is a, a section that provides a little bit of relief from the repetitive nature of the song. And sometimes it even has different lyrics and even different music, like they just change it completely. And even some songs, so I understand, have a pre-chorus, which is, you know, not always there, but, but it's kind of a build up to the chorus. Right, so that's kind of the structure of a song. That's how you write a song. Now, I want you to imagine something for a moment. <laughs> and, I, and I was chuckling to myself a little bit when I was thinking about this. I want you to imagine for a moment that I invented the structure of a song or song lyric. Okay, just work with me here. Imagine if I went on Twitter and I tweeted something out that said, um, Hey, everyone. 
I just created this thing called writing a song. And every songwriter has to follow this structure or formula. There has to be a, a ver- there have to be verses, there has to be a chorus, there may be a bridge, there may be a pre-chorus, there's an intro, there may be a guitar solo, what have you. But every songwriter has to follow this formula or this structure. I just want you to imagine if I posted that on Twitter in 2021. I imagine the responses I would get on social media if I posted that today. I I, I can't even like I I it would be, you know, somebody's going to come back to me and say, "Oh, why are you being so prescriptive, Tom? <laughs> why are you trying to stifle their creativity and dictating the structure? <laughs> why don't you let the songwriters decide the structure?" Or uh, is this just about compliance and and them doing what you want them to do? Well, whose song is it anyway? Like I, I honestly, I I, I got to stop there because I I could spend an hour just thinking about all the responses you might get on social media. It's exhausting thinking about how people would respond if if that was the case today. And we haven't even talked about music, right? We haven't talked about tonality, harmony, melody, rhythm, texture, etc. Like we haven't talked about the elements of music either. Okay, <laughs> tangent over. Let's go back to, to the show. So as I watched the producers and the songwriters on Songland, I was completely struck by how disciplined and structured their creativity is. That there is both an art and a science to creativity. You know, again, when they first hear those songs, the the producers start talking about, you know, hey, you know, maybe maybe it's in the wrong key or... They talk about, there's not really a chorus in this song, or what's the story? I'm not, I'm not, I don't understand the story you're trying to tell. There's, there's all sorts of feedback that the producers are giving the artist, or the, I should say the songwriter. And it makes me think that too often when we talk about creativity, we want to immediately gravitate to this open-ended free-for-all. And that might be fine when we're talking about something silent, like, you know, problem solving, go ahead and riff off and do whatever you you want to do. But in music, have you ever heard a middle school band absolutely determined to invent their own notes or pitch or rhythm or anything like that? It doesn't work. Shout out to the middle school uh, music teachers, by the way. Uh, How you shape those young musicians into some semblance of cohesion is truly miraculous. Okay. Now, We know innovation, imagination, creativity has to occur within the structure of a discipline if it's going to have any kind of viable meaning. There there are certainly elements of freedom throughout the creative process, but again, that's within the parameters of whatever discipline we are working within. There is a discipline, even in artistry, there is a discipline to acting. There is a discipline to painting. There's a discipline to writing. There's a discipline to just about everything, even in problem solving. There has to be some discipline and structure there. If in problem solving, you propose a solution that's not viable, not affordable, not attainable, not reasonable, then what good is it? Real challenges require real solutions and real solutions often cost real money. So the idea that a viable solution just ignores, for example, the economics of the entire situation is maybe fine for an eight-year-old. But at some point, real change has to be really attainable. Anyway, the, the, the point is that we cannot 
and should not ignore the structure and the discipline of the process of creative thinking. You have to be well-versed within that which you are being creative in order for creativity and imagination and innovation to, to manifest. Now, back in February, you'll recall that when I was talking about assessing thinking with creative intent or creative thinking, there is a process for being creative. There is the preparation phase where you identify areas of curiosity that you want to investigate. There's the incubation phase where you then let those ideas marinate and you just think about all the potential iterations. Then there's the illumination phase where you get your epiphany and you say, okay, I think this is, this is the most viable solution. And then we seek verification, right? What's possible? Is this actually doable? And a lot of times that verif verification actually comes through experts, that we seek out experts to say, is this something that's feasible? Is this actually possible? And then once we have verification, then we act. There's the implementation phase. And being creative without discipline and structure at times, you know, of course, can be harmless. But at other times, it could be catastrophic in the adult world. So when I watched the musicians and the songwriters and the producers on Songland, they taught me that structure and discipline and creative thinking do not have to be another one of these false dichotomies that we manufacture just for likes and retweets. Having not just a foundational knowledge, but having a level of expertise about a topic or an issue is how real and authentic hypothesizing and solutions start to come about. If you rush to be the most creative or the in most innovative, you can't lose sight of how important that foundation structure or protocols or processes can be. It requires a little bit of front-end loading, but it's going to have a back-end payoff. As I said, my absolute favorite part of Songland is immediately following the first presentation of the song, where Shane and Esther and Ryan and, and even the guest artist start just rip it, riffing off the song. They start thinking about ideas. They start throwing it out there. They start playing off one another. What could be done to make the song even better? It is an incredibly creative moment. And... Honestly, it would be very easy to pass that off as just three people randomly throwing ideas out there. But where do those creative ideas come from? They come from years of honing their craft. They come from years of hard work. They come from years of discipline. They come from years, if you will, of content knowledge. All of that now affords them the ultimate freedom when it comes to their creativity. Because their freedom is in the fact that their creativity is now habitual. That their creativity is now their default disposition. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. Joining me today for the interview is my dear friend, my colleague, and my co-author, Mandy Stalitz. Uh, currently, Mandy is a high school math teacher at the University High School in Normal, Illinois. Now, little story time here from Tom. Uh, in November of 2014, I was presenting at the National Middle School Conference in Nashville, uh, Tennessee. Now, while I was there presenting, I thought to myself, in between my sessions, I'm going to attend other sessions on assessment and grading. So one of the sessions I attended was Mandy and her colleague talking about their standards-based grading journey. And within 10 minutes of that presentation beginning, I had already sent an email to Mandy saying, 
hey, I hope it's okay that I emailed you, not trying to be the creepy old guy in the back of your session, but we need to talk. And the rest, as they say, is history. It did not take me very long to figure out that Mandy was and is an exceptional educator who deserved a much broader platform. Mandy joined our Solution Tree Assessment Center team as an associate in the spring of 2015. And very soon after that, she and I, along with Garnet Hillman, co-authored Standards-Based Learning in Action. She and Garnet have also since co-authored the book, Coaching Your Classroom, How to Deliver Actionable Feedback to Students. That came out in 2019. And the two of them have another book on the way this July that we're going to talk about that book a little bit later. So I'm really excited to have Mandy on the podcast. Mandy, welcome to the Tom Schimmer podcast. Thank you. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I mean, you and I talk all the time and, and certainly, uh, you know, full disclosure, we we work closely together and we've done trainings together. So this is going to feel like uh, a conversation that we've had uh, many times before. So I want to start with the, the the context of the past 14 months and, you know, what the last 14 months has looked like for you, because you are still a full-time classroom teacher and you've, you know, been navigating the pandemic. So I'm wondering, you know, what has it looked like for you over the last 14 months with, for you and your colleagues at University High School? So uh, last summer, we were fully prepared to come back to school. Um, we were coming back five days a week. We were excited. And about three days before the school year started in August, we got an email that said our school was shut down again. Mm -hmm. So um, the cases were spiking around us. So about three days before school started, um, we got the email that we were turning back to full remote. So while we were all in our classrooms setting them up, we had to change directions just last minute and go back fully remote. So we remained fully remote um, from August until about mid-October. And in mid-October, we came back hybrid. So our hybrid system uh, was splitting the kids. So they either came on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, Thursday. Everyone was remote on Friday, but we were teaching many different groups of students at the same time. So um, our classes were always synchronous, or I guess we had the option to have asynchronous, but basically if we were teaching the remote learners were zooming in. Um, so we were teaching in-person learners, um, hybrid learners who were home on that day, as well as students who chose to be fully remote. So there was a lot of different platforms and a lot of different kids mm -hmm. to navigate. Um, our cases spiked here again around the holidays. So we, um, after break, went back fully remote again. Um, that transition was really hard for us, for our kids, because they had a little bit of a taste of what in-person learning was like. Um, it was pretty unique because at University High School, we have freshmen who are coming from 20 different middle schools and they don't know one another. They finally got to meet friends and see other people and be social. And then that was taken away really quickly. Um, so being part of the university around that time, we had our spring break canceled. So wow. um, trying to limit cases. Yeah, it's been a long semester, but we came back hybrid again in March. Um, and we actually did it with a lot of success. So I'm sorry, we came back hybrid in February. And then in March, because of that success, then we came back. We're, I'm calling it full time, um, but four days a week. Okay. So kids would come back four days a week and then everyone was remote on Friday and we made it through the end of the year without shutting down. Our last day of student attendance was yesterday. Teacher Institute is today. So um, we've made it, <laughs> but that's oh, wow. what our year looked like. It was challenging. 
It's uh, to say the it, least. Yeah, to you know, it's interesting when you talk about the freshmen. Uh, you know, it's something I hadn't really thought of was the idea that here they come from. You said twenty different middle schools. They mm-hmm. they show they they part of the transition to high school, of course, is getting to know the school, making those social connections, getting to know your teachers, all of that. That really has relied on a face to face contact. So now that the school year has finished. Uh, how, how did that unfold for them? Like, how, how did you, did you see those connections? Was it just delayed or was it really different for them as they went through this school year compared to others? So what was really hard, and these are things that you don't think about, or I don't think about. So hmm. um, the kids normally will come in shadow in the spring for high school. The eighth graders will come shadow. And then we have like freshman orientation. Well, with schools being shut down in the spring, the kids never shadowed. Um, with yeah. us being shut down in the summer, those kids, when they came back for hybrid, it was their first time ever setting foot in the building. Wow. So I remember the day before we came back, one of the kids was like, Hey, um, where's your room? <laughs> and it was this moment where I was like, I can't even say like in the math wing, I can't say room 202. Like they, and another kid was like, yeah, well, we're talking about that. Where do you walk in the building at? Yeah. And those are the things that I, I, it, it blew me away. Like, whoa, you don't even know, you know? So I had said on that day, I'm like, okay, guys, you know what? You've never been in this building before. You don't know where the lunchroom is. You don't know what any of this is. So how about no learning tomorrow, right? Like when you come back, all we're going to do is we're going to take a tour. We're going to look at these. And I want you to bring all your questions, write them down, bring your schedule. So you know where your classes are at. Like, let me show you where your teachers are. And we spent the day just walking room to room and just getting to know the building. But these kids don't know each other. So, mm-hmm. and, and now there, there's only half of the kids there. So forming relationships was really hard. So as a teacher, you know, we talk so much about the social emotional aspect, but there's also like, we really had to embrace that. And I'm not saying put content secondary, like, but in some aspects, put content secondary as they're transitioning back. You know, there were some kids who came back for the first day and that's the first time they had been around people and were just freaking out. And one moment that sticks out to me is I had a freshman girl who came to my last class of the day and I said, hey, how are you doing? And she goes, good. That's the first time I've talked today. And I said, what do you mean? And she's uh, like, I don't know anyone. She's like, I'm the only person here from a middle school. And I just, I don't know who to talk to. So I just, I'm quiet all day, you know, yeah. and that I really took that hurt. And I really reflected on that. And, you know, we need to leave space. I had to leave space for them to just talk and have downtime and just um, connect with one another. So I will say that yesterday in our last day, like my last class, they, they had said, in some aspects, it seems like the longest year we've ever had. And in some, it seems like the shortest because I finally just made friends. Yeah. I was like, yeah. So it's, it's been challenging. Wow. I, I, I just can't yeah. even imagine. I think, I think it's so hard to fathom. I mean, this has been a, an incredibly challenging year for educators, but I can't imagine transitioning to a new school. Um, right. Equally yeah. challenging for students, but those friendships and those connections they normally yeah. make as they enter high school, I, I, I can't even, re- you know, imagine that. Now, when you when you all were were uh, remote, or even like when you were remote, were you running a full day schedule? Like, were you running the schedule as you always had run the schedule? Or was there a shortened version of that? 
No, we modified our schedule, but we okay. were running a full day schedule. Full schedule. So instead of um, instead of them going to first hour, second hour, third hour, fourth hour, we transitioned to a block. Okay. Um, so we had four classes on Monday, Wednesday, the other four on Tuesday, Thursday, and then on Friday we ran a shortened schedule where they uh, did see all their classes okay. with a late start. Okay. Um, and then when we were remote, we had a requirement. Our requirement was at least 100 synchronous minutes per week. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So when, when you, when you look at, you know, how obviously everyone's anticipating that come the fall, things will be somewhat back to normal. Um, again, normal has to always be spoken with an asterisk, right? What, what does normal look mm -hmm. like? But I think that we'll be closer to quote unquote normal come the fall. But when you think about, uh, some of the adjustments you made to your teaching practices, you know, from last spring, obviously 14 months ago when the pandemic really hit uh, in March of, uh, of 2020, you, you obviously have made some very significant adjustments to your instructional practices uh, since then. And so as you head into the fall and you think about what changes you've made to teaching and in, in, in how you approach learning uh, which aspects of those adjustments or which adjustments I should say are now going to be a habitual sort of permanent part of your instructional repertoire? Have you made any changes that you now realize, like I should have been doing that all along and I'm now going to continue to do that with my students this point forward? Yeah. So I'll share a story with you because this is the story that really changed everything for me. Um, when we first came back to hybrid, I don't even remember what the context was, but I said something about, so it was in an algebra two trigonometry class. Those students have taken algebra one. And I said something like, oh, and this is a quadratic. And I remember one of my students said, I don't know what that is. And my inside my, my mind, I said, how do you not know what that is? But I'm not gonna, you know, I said, oh, so let's talk about that. And we started talking about, we started exploring it. And she goes, can I give you an honest reflection? And I said, yeah, and she goes, Last spring, when we were, you know, when schools got shut down, she goes, I became such a passive learner. Now, this girl is a dedicated, dedicated student. She goes, I sat at my computer every day. I listened to all the lessons, but I never spoke back. She goes, the words, the language that was taught to me, I have never said uh, those words. I've heard them. Someone's told them to me, but I basically then took what someone told me and I put it on paper and I don't own it. She's like, so now when people reference that learning, I don't have it. And she goes, and that's really hard for me because I'm such a dedicated learner. And that started really getting me thinking about what happened, like just the changes that have happened for these kids, right? The fact that a dedicated student was like, yeah, I learned it. I did what you told me, but I don't own it. That's something that I started really reflecting on. Um, you know, those, those high intensity, low frequency words that, that, that those aren't in their vocabulary. They're not because they haven't practiced them. They haven't communicated. There hasn't been that discourse. So, so how can we expect them to tie new knowledge to old knowledge and like build on their existing understanding of this concept when they've never actually done it, they've had it taught to them. Like that was something that I really, really, really learned. And I've, it's, it's probably the one conversation from this year that's had the biggest impact on me. Um, so I have really this year embraced learning progressions. Um, 
in a way that I've never done before. So in the past being standards-based, I have taken my standards and I've deconstructed them. Um, but I think in my past deconstructing standards, I more wrote them at the proficiency level, maybe a little bit below, so that students have like a list of criteria, like here's what it is. And then I started learning about learning progressions, um, actually from a conversation that you and I had, and then we continued to explore, but that's actually breaking down the standard from the least complex to the most complex in those targets. And I've been very intentional about when I design my learning progressions, writing them so that the lowest level of complexity actually addresses the prerequisite knowledge that they need as they enter my classroom. And then I write them all the way up to an advanced understanding of the standard. And I, I talk with my students about that kind of being a learning ladder. Like you've got to find your rung. You've got to find where you know, you don't need to find where you're at. I need to find where you're at. You know, like I need to use assessment in a way not to say, well, you should have learned this, but actually figure out, okay, so what did they learn? So they're here. So how do I get them here, here, here? And it's it's been really interesting as I've designed learning progressions instead of just deconstructed standards this year, because I can see, okay, they did learn that or they didn't learn that. Or like, you know, I can look target by target, kid by kid, and I can better differentiate. Um, I think in the past, I've acknowledged that prerequisite knowledge. I pre-assessed it informally and I almost did it like in a, in a kind of like a reteaching manner, like, okay, you've seen this, let's review this. But some of them saw it, but did not internalize it. So I've had to be more mindful about creating those progressions and finding a student's place on that progression. Um, I think that, I'm not gonna say that that's an acute change. Like that's been a significant change in my classroom, but it's one of those aha moments where I was like, how did I not do this before? <laughs> what, you know, it's one of those that you don't know until you learn. And now I've learned and I, I couldn't transition back. Um, I, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, it's, 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 uh, it's interesting that you bring that up because I have found myself over the last number of months working with a lot of schools and school districts and teachers on this very notion of learning progressions and specifically the assessment planning alongside the unit planning, because you, you, you used a, a, a phrase or an expression, finding out where they are and, and that sort of, you know, multiple levels of entry points of entry for students makes right. things a lot more inclusive for them. And, and I've found that being very intentional about that is something that, again, it only makes us more effective and precise and more efficient in our assessment practices. So I love that, that, that you're looking at, at it that way, because I think that's a really powerful practice and not that you are lucky. See, sometimes I think people think that a learning progression is just this linear kind of lock step. You can't deviate from that. And I think that it's the spirit of it is understanding where they are in their learning. So can you, can you expand on that a little bit? Because the, this misunderstanding that when you create a learning progression, you're kind of creating this, this restrictive kind of lock step sort of progression to learning where it's not really meant to be as restrictive as it sounds. So can you talk a little bit about how you navigated through that? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to answer your question in a minute, but I'll say like the other thing, <laughs> the, the other acute change that I've made um, is really prioritizing standards as well. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. 
you know, and I think that's important for this progression conversation um, is I, I did have to like, I can't get through the same content that I always have at the same rigor level. But what I could do is I could look at my classes and at the end of the year and say, what do I want kids to know, understand and do? What are the non-negotiables for them to be successful in the next course? Like, got it. Let's backwards design and let's actually like almost prioritize the priority standards for this year and figure out which ones are the most important. It doesn't mean that the other ones aren't being assessed or aren't important. It's just that we've really outlined some non-negotiable learnings that need to happen. So those prioritized standards are the ones that I've created the learning progressions around because I do want the rigor, like pandemic or not, we do need to respect the rigor level that is demanded of our priority standards. And I need to get my kids there. Um, So, you know, I, what I have personally done with those learning progressions is I've designed an assessment plan that, that mirrors that progression. So I can not only like find a student's entry point, but actually like support them and lift them up as they're climbing the rungs of that ladder. So I have intentionally designed the summative assessment first. So that way we have a clear target. Like here's the, not the top of the ladder, but like, here's the target level. Like I'm getting you here, I promise. And that's clearly communicated to students. And then what I've done is I've designed many, many formative assessments that are actually aligned to my instructional, um, into my learning progression starting at the pre-assessment level. So those assessments, like I'm not saying I'm over-testing these kids. I'm actually over-observing them, right? Like I'm I'm very tuned into like listening to their words, looking at their body language. Now that we're back in person, like are, are they uncomfortable? Are they engaged? Um, but I've designed many formative assessments, both formal and informal on the spot assessments that are aligned to those progressions. Um, for those targets that are like hard to learn and hard to teach and require some intervention time, those might be my more formal formative assessments or the more obtrusive ones where we actually stop learning so that I can get real data to intervene with. But I, I know that how I just described that made it sound very regimented. Like at this one, we assess this way. At this one, we assess this way. But it's fluid. Like what I haven't talked about yet is that daily planning comes last. You know, I know the progression, I know the journey, and I know where we want to end. So I've actually designed those assessments intentionally in advance of teaching. So that way, when we get there and I collect that data, then I can actually plan the next day. So maybe I see that all of my students have mastered this target. So I can skip over that one. Or maybe I just see the small group needs like some in-class, just, you know, quick intervention with this target. So I'm going to plan this for tomorrow. Um, so I've created this assessment plan that aligns to my learning progression so that it's not, um, uh, so concrete, but it can be fluid and based on the needs of the kids in my class. Right. It, it just, again, speaks to the idea that the, uh, the, the more that you plan ahead of time, you know, Cassie, Nicole, and I talk about plan with precision, respond with agility, yeah. this idea, it, it feels like a dichotomy, but it's not because the more you're planned in advance uh, of the instructional progression, the more you have the flexibility to react and respond, knowing what those benchmarks are for sure. I want to turn our attention to um, the students uh, because obviously, you know, the 
the big issue coming out of COVID is the levels and degrees of trauma that students have experienced. And I, I'm going to set that aside, not, not trying to underplay that, not trying to dismiss that, have to acknowledge that. But I, I want to I focus on, because that's going to require some very serious, sometimes personalized interventions for, for those learners. Uh, and and there, it isn't just about learning, it's about them as, as young people, for sure. Uh, so setting that aside, I want to think about from a learner's perspective, coming coming sort of, and I know we're not out of COVID yet, but coming out of COVID, do you think that the pandemic has permanently changed learners and the way students approach learning when 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 and if you know things get back to a level of normalcy in the fall, or maybe they have for some schools, you know, this spring? How do you do you think learners have sort of permanently changed in how they approach learning? And if so, in what ways do you see that? Huh, okay, so I think we can all agree, like as things get back to normal, that there was no learning loss. <laughs> mm -hmm. Nothing was lost along the way. But, you know, when my kids transitioned back to full-time learning, I was so excited. Like I, it was, it was like, um, the day before vacation, you know, I couldn't sleep the day before. I was so excited to just have this active, loud, like classroom. I was missing that chaos in my life. And I remember after the first week, I was really sad. And it was because like, while there wasn't necessarily learning loss and maybe another teacher might've had a different experience. What I found is that my students didn't make progress or maybe even lost some of the learner qualities that they had developed over the years. Um, without that support at home, it was really easy to just grab the cell phone and, you know, like be scrolling through while the teacher was talking, or it was a lot easier to give up when learning was hard. Um, so I know I took your question and went in the other direction and I'm going to turn it around in a minute, but that was one of the things that struck me as, as a goal for myself moving forward is that not only teaching the content, um, and getting frustrated for the lack of the skill. Like I can't get frustrated with the lack of a learner quality if I'm not focusing on teaching and providing feedback on that learner quality. So um, I'm hoping that that's not a permanent change, but I'm, I think it's something that we need to be mindful of learners because they do need to be coached back into those strong qualities. However, I've seen a lot of great things come from my students and this is something that I hope goes with it. Um, with those learning progressions, one of the things that I've been really mindful of doing, whether it's in a remote or hybrid or in person, but if they see that learning progression and if they see that journey from like least complex to most complex, my hope that I was really trying to teach students to dive into was self-assessment. Do you see where you're at? Do you see where you need to go? So do you know like what you're learning, where you're at and how you're going to get there? And what I've seen in students that gets me really excited is some of those self-regulatory skills. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I will have students who come back now being a math teacher that'll come back and be like, I've got this. I don't need to keep practicing. Prove it to me. You're right. You do have it. Mm -hmm. So I hope that students, they were forced to self-regulate and they were forced 
to self-assess, um, obviously with the guidance of a teacher, but the teacher's not standing next to them and looking at their body language and looking at their work. So it was their responsibility to kind of gauge their, their proficiency. And I think that that's one of the things that I've you know, I think my students, I've seen that students um, realize that they don't need to be sitting in a classroom looking at something to learn, that learning looks different, you know, that they can, they can find their own resources, they can collaborate in different ways, and they can also self-assess and see where they're at or what they need, and then they can learn to advocate for themselves. So I think my hope moving forward and, and what the permanent piece is, is that students understand themselves better better at learners, can better advocate for themselves and can better um, like design their own learning journey mm -hmm. and kind of advocate for themselves and talk about like where they're at, what they understand and kind of understand how their how their brain processes information and how much support mm -hmm. they need. The, the, the pandemic definitely afforded us and, and almost forced so many teachers to build those self-regulatory practices in classrooms because uh, because of the absence of students and because yeah. of where, where they were learning remotely, for sure. I want to shift now and talk a little bit about math instruction and assessment. Uh, you know, I'm sure you've seen this as well, but I often see math as being a bit of a polarizing subject in, in, in education. You know, many have moved to a more sophisticated kind of problem-based authentic approach to, to math instruction, while others can feel stuck in a kind of um, algorithmic, you know, right, wrong, uh, somewhat reductionist approach to math. So in your mind, what is, what is the ideal way to approach math instruction and subsequently what is the ideal way to approach math assessment all right so um i i want to make sure that like when you say ideal i don't have all the answers right like but here's here's my philosophy and this is my belief um and and this is a few years ago, I started um, scoring Ed TPA. Do you? You guys don't have Ed TPA in Canada, no, not, do no, you? Not in Canada, no. So, okay. a quick, quick, so, uh, quick lesson for all of us. <laughs> it's very quick. Like I, I, Illinois, a university high schools, a university lab schools. We service Illinois State University. So our purpose is to train pre-service teachers. Okay. So Ed TPA is actually like the the portfolio assessment that pre-service teachers have to submit at the end of their experience, and they have to pass to get their teaching certificate. So it's kind of neat. And I started exploring that, and I was really just looking at kind of what you're saying, like we really are polarized, you know, like there's, mm -hmm. there's either like skill and drill or like this huge big picture. And what I've found through that journey and like through my experience and through mentoring pre-service teachers and working with the math department is there really needs to be a balance of three pillars. Like we need a balance of conceptual understanding. Mm -hmm. They need the concept and they need to understand how they're going to connect that concept to old learning and build upon it. Mm -hmm. We then need to balance that with procedural fluency, right? So, so that old antiquated practice of not skill and drill, but like procedure, like let's actually practice this procedure and let's make sure you own it. That, that is still part of the process. You know, like if they understand the concept of fraction addition in middle school, but they only understand the concept and they can't actually do the procedure, well, they're gonna be at a disadvantage. So we need to balance that conceptual understanding with the procedural fluency. And then we bring in that third pillar, which is actually reasoning and problem solving. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that every single one of those needs to be balanced. There does need to be a balance of all three. They do need to understand the concepts behind what they're doing. They do need to understand the procedure that happens. And then they also need to have that kind of um, the reasoning, the argumentative literacy behind it. Like I can convince you that this is the best answer. I can reason through, I can, I can look at a wrong answer and let you know where the error was. I can problem solve with this. But I think that it does need to be a balanced system between those three. If, if we are just really skill and drill heavy and only focus on that procedural understanding, then the, the, the connections that kids are making and the ability to reason and problem solve, that's going to be lost. But again, if we focus on one of those others without the procedure, then they're not going to be able to complete those higher level tasks. And I, I, I do think that as we think about the balance of that conceptual understanding, procedural fluency, and then reasoning and problem solving and incorporating each of those, our assessment plan as we look at designing that in advance can actually, we can be mindful about designing that with a balance of all three. You know, um, when, we, when we are creating learning progressions or our assessment plan, and we start out with targets that are really low depth of knowledge. They are very procedural. Well, then let's go ahead and let's do that procedural understanding. You know, there in, in an assessment architecture, there is a place for those lower level questions um, just to make sure that they've got the concept and they've got the procedure. And then when we look up our learning progression, we want to make sure that we're looking at the verb and that our assessment plan matches what the target is asking us to do. But I think at the end, we do need to reflect, to look at our entire plan and find a balance between those three. Okay. So you don't see them as neither of those three are a higher priority or something you would emphasize. You see them as three separate, not separate, but you see them as three balanced, equally important ideas around math instruction and what kids need to learn. And if one is missing, it obviously leaves a deficit in sort of the big picture of math. Is that how you sort of view those? I really do. Right. And with a focus on skills over content, you know, like we want them to have these skills, you know, like there will be standards where the verb is just solve or the verb is just, you know, add like, and it's okay to have that procedural fluency, have a larger focus with some of our standards. But when we look at a well-rounded student and we're moving them on to the next level, I think that all three of those do need to have maybe not equal. Um, you know, there could be a little bit of a, of a unbalance there, but all three of them are important and all three of them are necessary. Mm -hmm. So would it be, would it it be the idea then that, I mean, not every standard is going to necessarily incorporate all three, but in the, in the totality of the experience in, in your math class that students will have, uh, more than an adequate experience with all three of them. So they come out of the, of the class uh, having not just focused on, as you say, the, the drill, you, you call it drill and skill. A lot of people call it drill and kill. Uh, the idea of just, you know, worksheets and solving, you know, and, and it, it, it's always the case where it seems like whenever we take an extreme position or we kind of go all in on one side of the ledger, we're leaving an incomplete experience for the learner. So I love the idea of, of always having in the back of your mind, the idea of, of concepts, procedures, and problem solving and reasoning and, and having that sort of interplay between all three of those. So that leads me to thinking about feedback. And of course, I mentioned earlier that you and Garnet had published the book, Coaching Your Classroom and, and talking about actionable feedback. 
And I'm interested in two things, and, and I'll sort of let you run with this. One is uh, why coaching? Why did, why did you guys decide to, uh, you know, title your book, Coaching Your Classroom? And specifically, what are the keys to effective, actionable feedback in a math classroom? So the reason why we called it coaching, so Garnet and I, you know, became good friends over the years and both of our kids are just heavily involved in sports, um, you know, and we talked about our own experience growing up in athletics or just band or like anything where we were an active participant in learning something. Um, we, you know, we, I don't even know how this conversation, we were just talking about like, you know, good teaching you know, what that looks like. And we started thinking about like where we got the best feedback. Um, and we started talking about coaching and, and I think like we both started attending our kids practices or like going just through life and looking at like what it meant to teach and what it meant to coach. And I want to be very, very, very clear that like the book and our ideas are not a comparison of teaching and coaching, right? It's not, it's not one versus the other. It's not that right. like coaches, it's not that it's looking at the parallels between teaching and coaching and looking what we can learn from one another. You know, I, when you walk into an athletic practice, and I know I've heard you say this as well, like when you walk into an athletic practice and look at who's doing the heavy lifting, like who is the one that is actively stretching and pushing themselves and really like, like growing through that practice, it's the athlete, you know? So if you look at what the coach's role is in a practice, in a situation, it's assessment. What a coach is doing when they coach at a practice is they are assessing and providing feedback. I've, I've spent a lot of time over the last few years actually just sitting and watching practices um, and, and looking at what the coach does. You know, they're actively looking around, observing, like they might stop two kids to reteach a skill. Now, then. they might stop practice to say, hold up, we need to come back together, remind ourselves of our goal. Let's talk about this together. Now you go back. You know, there's a time and a place for direct instruction, but then there's also a time and a place for active observation and assessment and feedback. And we started looking at that and me being at a university lab school that trains pre-service teachers, I started reflecting a lot because there's such a focus in pre-service education on the lesson plan. What are you going to do? And I view that as really teacher-centered instead of student-centered. Like assessment is starting to gain some traction. Like we are starting to talk more about assessment, but when the, when you have this great lesson plan, it's all about what you are doing and how you are delivering content and how you are assessing where really it should be about like, what is the student learning? What is the student doing? And then how are you actively watching, observing, reacting and providing feedback? And we had a lot of talk about just what it meant to coach your classroom. Like teaching, when you just think of the word teach, it sounds like someone who possesses all of the knowledge that is teaching it to someone else. And while in some respects that's true, like what if you coached learners 
through that new knowledge? What if they were the ones that were doing the heavy lifting? Like there's definitely a place for direct instruction. Don't get me wrong. Like as a math teacher, heck, I need to do a lot of direct instruction, but there's also a lot of moments where I could just turn that learning over to them. And I do the coaching through that process. Um, Because I think that feedback is more natural maybe in the ELA realm, you know, like it's something where there's not a lot of pushback there because it's what we're used to. And in math, I think it's really easy to look at work and determine the correctness of the work, Right. where it's a lot different to look at work in mathematics and really think about the error that occurred and decide like, how do we coach someone? How do we look at this work and recognize strength um, relate them back to the target, provide them next steps. So, um, we, we wrote that book and we explored that just because, you know, when you look at the research that surrounds feedback, like feedback has one of the highest effect sizes out there on student learning when done correctly. And it doesn't matter what realm you're in. There are moments in each of our classroom where we can turn learning over to the kids let them be the active ones and allow ourselves an opportunity to coach, you know, to see, to see body language. This year was hard, but it was really easy in past years to see hunched shoulders or disengagement and to lean in. But if it's a teacher centered classroom, there's often not that space to observe those moments. So through that book, we had, we had, um, you know, given some feedback models, some structures to guarantee that each learner is getting the same amount of coaching. Um, but it's one of my passion areas for math because I am so sick of people walking in my classroom and saying, I'm not a math learner. Yes, you are. Every single kid learns math. Um, let me, let me coach you. Let me provide you feedback. And, um, right. so that's, that's where we were at with that. Yeah. It's okay. my passion so, project. I love it. So, so let's just explore this a little bit. Um, you know, maybe put it into context, but what are one or two of your favorite feedback strategies that you use in your math classroom specifically? Yeah. So we actually did a lot. Uh, so okay. I've gone through this journey, but I'll tell you my two favorite. My okay. two favorite is, um, One of them is not like a real structure. It's just something that I've developed over time. Whenever I provide feedback to a student in my classroom, whether it be written on their work or whether it be me coaching my classroom, walking around and stopping to a kid, the first thing that comes out of my mouth is a recognition of a strength or where they're at. No one is, is, is that far off that I can't recognize something, whether it's, whether it's an effort, whether it's engagement, whether it like, I start by thanking them or recognizing them for where they're currently at. So for me, that means that when students do that, I just get, I get different body language. I get a different reaction. I get students that are, oh, you recognized me. You saw me in your classroom. Got it. So then, so I might say, Hey, thank you so much. Like, I love that you're highlighting underlining key information, that problem. That's exactly what I've taught you to do. Their answer could be way off, but let's recognize the strength. Let's recognize something that they did. That's a good learner quality. And then I try to relate it back to the target. So like my structure in my classroom is three steps. Start with the strength, relate it back to the target. You know, remember that what we're trying to do is this, you know, so remind them of our goal. And then number three is provide them an actionable next step. 
So that could either be like something with the word next, or now I want you to do this, or remember this chart that we have up here. I want you to re-look at that. Something that when I walk away or when I put that paper on their desk, that they have an action to take. So then if that's written, the next 10 minutes of the next period is reacting to that feedback and responding with it, not me writing it, and then they can put it in their folder and be done with it. But now the next class period where we are actively getting back in the work. Um, another structure that I really like that I use in my classroom a lot is TAG, T-A-G. So um, I use this a lot for teacher to student feedback, but also for peer feedback. T stands for tell them something you like. A stands for ask them a question and G stands for give them an actionable suggestion. So I model that with kids, but then I also ask them to use that same structure. So when we are doing peer, peer feedback, oh, I like that you did this. Why did you do this? Can I suggest that you do this? Um, that obviously can't be, can happen unless students are, do have a partial proficiency with the target. But those are two of the structures that I like okay. using in my classroom. It not when only you, gives student action, but it, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no. Uh, I was going to say, when you when you use TAG, uh, do you use that as a partnership or do you like to use that with, say, a group of four? Because obviously it lends itself to the three, the three, uh, the TAG, it lends itself to that. And then it comes back to the student who then acts upon all of the, the statements. It, what kind of structure do you use with that? I tend to just do partners, but like partners, my classroom okay. pre-COVID, pre-COVID was always groups of four. So we would do it in that, so that way there were more minds coming to the table. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But I tend to just do it with partners. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, obviously during COVID and and uh, limitations in terms of contact and other, I mean, it, I think the point is you can do it under any sort of condition, whether it's a partnership. And I think it's a great, I love that structure for, um, for that peer assessment um, and engineering those opportunities because sometimes we put kids into peer assessment situations, but they don't know what to say to each other. So guiding them with some structure like that can really help them. I tell us about the new book, Mandy. The um, the this coming this July, you and Garnet had have written a new book called um, uh, "Assessment as a Catalyst for Learning: Creating a Responsive and Fluid Process to Inspire All Students." So, tell us a little bit about the book and what uh, listeners or readers can anticipate when they uh, get their copy in July. <laughs> yeah. So. Um... This whole book came about, um, and I'll talk about the assessment piece, but assessment, like when I went through school or when I first started in education, assessment was something that I did to kids, right? Like it was, it was something that I did to them to get them to learn or like to provide, to provide like a value judgment on their learning at like this arbitrary day that I picked and like assessment over the last couple of decades has really evolved. Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, like assessment is a process and assessment is a learning experience and assessment is a gift. Like assessment is something that you do for kids, with kids, not mm -hmm. to them. Um, the title came about because it was actually Garnet. Garnet was presenting one day and after her presentation, someone came up to her and say, said, I get it, I've had my aha moment assessment is learning. Mm -hmm. Like it's not, it's not judging, it's learning. And, um, you know, Garnet had called me and said, this is what we did. And I was like, all right, like that's our title. That's what we're going with. And of course, you know, titles get changed. Yeah. So assessment is a catalyst for learning is where we're at now, but okay. it's the whole premise that every single person learns from assessment. 
students learn from assessment. Teachers learn about what comes next. Teachers learn about their learners. Teachers learn about learning styles. Teachers learn about their whole instruction if assessment is set up correctly. It's really easy to default to hold habits and have assessment be a judge of student proficiency, which that is one of the purposes of it, but we need to repurpose that's like, it's how our team learns, it's how our team reflects. And it's really just about not assessment as a single event, but as a process over time that supports students and teachers. Right, right. I mean, in some ways we can look at assessment as feedback from the students to us in terms of how how you know we we understand where they are how how we make adjustments how we respond in those situations and the information runs 360 degrees for sure these these are very exciting times for you mandy because not only do you have a new book coming out in july but you have a new job next year so tell us a little bit about the new job I do. Um, I'm having this whole, yeah, Tom, like, thanks for reminding me how much I have about that. No, I, um, I have really mixed emotions. So I love teaching and I love kids and I love math and I, I, I am not ready to give up my classroom, but I am next year. Um, so my new role for next year is I'm going to be the curriculum and research coordinator for the laboratory school district. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and we are like, I just accepted the job this week. Today is my first day in my not set up office. Um, so, so like, we're still really learning what this job looks like, but I want to, I want to have a direct impact on kids. Like that's it. I want to have a direct impact on learning. And I felt like I had that in my classroom, but it was a very small group of kids. So next year for our district, I am going to be working on um, a standards aligned curriculum, sound Mm -hmm. assessment practices, sound grading practices. My new job is going to include a lot of professional development, um, a lot of analyzing data through assessment, um, instructional coaching, but also being part of the university. One of the um, one of the jobs of our school, one of our missions is um, a research component. So I'm also going to be helping our teachers conduct research around some of the practices that we are trying in our classroom and what impact that has on learners. So um, my, my answer is kind of vague because I'm still learning exactly what my job <laughs> so is going to be that I start in yeah. August, but I'm hoping that I can really impact more kids next year. Well, knowing you as I do, um, and obviously I'm a little biased, but uh, I think they could not have <laughs> picked a better person for the job. I think you are so well suited for that job, and I'm excited to hear about how that uh, that unfolds. So uh, we're going to shift now, Mandy, to three questions as we finish up today. Um, as you know, uh, three fun questions that kind of get give listeners a chance to get to know you a little bit on a personal level, nothing too intrusive, but just some fun questions that, that kind of, uh, again, 
personalized things for you, not just the professional side of Mandy, but a little bit of the personal side. Um, so here's the first I'm question. I'm so nervous for these. So nervous. Yeah, okay. <laughs> they're, they're not that big a deal. <laughs> All right, here's you the first one. You know that I'm a preparer. You know I know that. you are. So I feel you, like you, you take this to are. me. Okay. That's right. Yeah, listeners, you should know that whenever you try to do anything spontaneous with Mandy, it stresses her out because she's definitely yeah. a planner uh, and likes to have things organized, that's for sure, which is one of the reasons I love working with you and with Garnet when we <laughs> planned our trainings and all of that, because I know you're on it. Okay, first question. What weird food combinations do you actually really like? Okay, I don't know. Everyone thinks this is weird, but I, like, my mom made this all the time growing up. She would always um, take dill pickle spears and wrap them in cream cheese and then wrap it in a ham, slice of ham, mm -hmm. and then slice it up. And that's like hands down my favorite snack. And I get two reactions to that. Like my mom would always bring it like, as like bring a dish and that's yeah. what she would bring. And it was my favorite snack. And some people like see it and they're like, Oh, I love that. I haven't had that forever. And I was like, see, it's normal. And then some people look at that. They're like, that's so gross. What are you eating? Have you ever had it? I have not, but I'm definitely going to try it. Don't knock it till you try it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so tell okay, me again, so it's pickles. Answer. Pickles, Still pickles, spear. Yeah. Cream cheese. Well, actually, so you lay out the ham, you lay out a slice of ham, and then okay. you put cream cheese like on top of the ham, and then you yeah. put the dill pickle yeah. spear in there okay. and roll it yeah. and then cut Slice it up. Slice it. Yeah. Little toothpicks on a fancy plate, and you've got yourself an order, right? <laughs> this is not fancy. You should just fingers. Can't we upscale it? We can make it a little bit fancy. We'll use fancy pickles. Hi, <laughs> expensive yes, ham. Fancy pickles. <laughs> All right. Question two. What is the most expensive thing you've ever broken? Okay. I'm really good at backing my car up out of the garage and taking the mirror off. Like ah. I do it a lot. Okay. Okay. All right. That can get so, expensive. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I actually, um, if you there's always kids in the back of my car or dogs or something. And I'm, I really like in my own defense, I'm trying to not hit children and I end up taking the mirror off, but I got a new car like a couple years ago and it has like the backup cameras and like, it has lights in it now. Like the, I don't know why there's technology everywhere in my car. And I took the mirror off a few months ago and it was so expensive to replace it that my mirror is currently just duct taped on. Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you got to get a it car with really the folding mirrors, the ones that can fold in so you can use your backup camera. Wow. That can get expensive. They fold. <laughs> it does. Oh, it I'm does. sure I've broken something more expensive, but that's where my oh, mind goes that's, to. That's pretty expensive. Okay. Yeah. Question three, last one. Uh, what outdoor activity haven't you tried yet that you really want to try? Okay. I don't like danger. <laughs> I don't like danger at all. Um, I like my feet on the ground. I enjoy safety. Um, <laughs> I know you wouldn't expect that about me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when I'm thinking about outdoor activities, like my mind goes to like all of that, which, okay, I know. I like one thing on my bucket list. So this is just, it does have to do with outdoors is um, I want to see a whale. Like mm -hmm. I want to go whale watching. And this is funny because um, Tom, where were we at? Uh, we were actually at a conference together. I went on a whale watching tour. Where were we? Long Beach. Long Beach. Okay. Yeah. So did I tell you the story about no. like when we went on the whale watching tour? No. 
Okay. So my big thing in life is like one thing on my bucket list is I want to see a whale. Mm -hmm. Um, I real have you, have you seen one? Yeah, I have. I'm sure hundreds. Yeah. 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 Okay. So when we were in Long Beach, my husband was like, he booked a whale watching tour for us because he knew how bad I wanted to do this. And I was so excited. Um, and we went out and they're like, this is a perfect season. Like, this is going to be great. And then they go on the intercom and they're like, oh, we see our first whale. It is the toothless whale, also known as the common dolphin. And... I might have that wrong. Two plus two. Anyway, um, so the this whale that we saw was actually a dolphin. So it got my hopes so high mm-hmm. and then so low at the same time. So we did not see a whale on that tour. So I think that my outdoor activity was I I do want to go whale watching and actually see one. Well, it is an activity and it is outdoors. It's not very active, <laughs> not really. but, but but I understand what you're saying. Yes, uh, certainly where I live in my part of the world, uh, and especially on the west coast of Vancouver Island, uh, whale watching and, and whale sightings are are quite common for sure. So you'll have to come up, uh, bring the family up to uh, the Pacific Northwest, if you will, and, and get on the coast and see that. But yeah, it's too bad you didn't see a, a whale on that trip as well. Okay, I've got one final question for you, Mandy. It's a question I ask all the guests on the podcast. Of course, it's about success and happiness. And it's a pretty simple question. If a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? My definition of success would just be finding happiness mm-hmm. in your day-to-day job. You know, like especially in education, like no one goes into education for the success that is defined by like money, you know, like that's not why we go into this, but at the end of the day, I feel successful because I find joy in my day-to-day interactions. Mm -hmm. You know, like I'm happy I'm making an impact on others. So I think success is just finding your purpose, finding your place and finding happiness in that place. Yeah. Like I'm so successful because I'm doing exactly what I want to do. It's, you know, you're talking about the day to day. I I think so many, you know, talk about how the more we can live, I know it sounds cliche, but the more we can live in the moment or live in the now, the happier we are, instead of always thinking about the future or the past, just thinking, about today and and making today the best day. And like I said, it sounds cliche, but I think there's a lot of truth to that idea. Uh, listeners, you definitely should follow uh, follow Mandy on Twitter. Uh, her Twitter handle is at Mandy Stalitz. Mandy is also one of the four co-moderators of the All Things Assessment chat. That's hashtag AT Assessment. That chat happens every other Tuesday. So we just had one this uh, past, so a week from tomorrow, uh, will be the, uh, the the next chat. So if you want to check that out, and we will be taking a break over the summer and then coming back uh, in the fall as well. So really thrilled to have you here, Mandy. Looking forward to hearing about the new job. Looking forward to reading the new book. Uh, this is going to be the summer of Mandy uh, at, uh, that's happening over for you. That's uh, very exciting for you. So Mandy, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. As we approach the end of the school year, today in Assessment Corner, I'm going to focus on a common end-of-year dilemma and maybe have you shift, if you haven't got there already, just shift how you approach trying to reconcile what's missing from students. Now, for some of you, of course, the school year is already over or will be over in short order, so you may be challenged in trying to make this change this year. 
For others, you've still got a few weeks or a month to go, uh, or maybe even a little bit longer. So the degree to which each of you can make this adjustment is certainly contextual. And if you can't do it this year, think about it going into next year. As time presses toward the end of the school year, teachers have forever faced the challenge of trying to reconcile missing assignments to get students caught up and to make sure when determining a student's final grade or level that it provides as accurate a picture as possible. What I want to suggest is that we shift our focus away from what tasks are missing to what samples are missing. This would be a subtle shift in focus for some and a massive shift for others. The key is to examine evidence from assessments through the lens of learning rather than the lens of assignments. To determine a student's overall grade or even multiple grades within curricular strands or categories, we need to have enough evidence. Now consider this about reliability from Jeffrey Smith. He wrote this back in 2003. Quote, what teachers really need to know from a reliability perspective is do I have enough evidence to make a reasonable decision about this student with regard to this domain of information? The essential reliability issue is, is there enough evidence here? End quote. Now, it has never been true that students have to complete all tasks in order to earn their grades in school because that would mean no student on an extended illness would ever be able to earn their end of semester or end of year grade. Now, you might say to me, but Tom, that's different because an excused absence would happen, we would, we would make an adjustment to an excused absence. Now, okay, so excused versus unexcused definitely matters from a behavioral perspective and whether their absence from school needs some follow-up or some follow-through in terms of their behavior. But from a learning perspective, it really doesn't make any difference. Missing evidence, whether the result of an excused or unexcused absence, is missing evidence, period. The reason the student on an extended illness can earn a grade is because the teacher has seen enough. That's the question Jeffrey Smith put forward. Is there enough evidence here? Reliability always precedes validity, right? So validity is really about interpretation, making a valid interpretation of the results, whether on a single student assignment or sample or a body of evidence. Ultimately, we have to make a valid meaning accurate interpretation of what the student has done to make sure that the score on a single assignment or in the case of a semester grade to make sure that the final grade is actually accurate and valid. But to make a valid interpretation of the results or the body of evidence, you first need reliability. Now, reliability is disproportionately talked about through the idea of inter-rater reliability, right? Can two or more teachers assign the same level, value, or score to the same demonstration of learning? But, and there is also intra-rater reliability, which is am I consistent with myself in terms of how I examine student demonstrations? Jay Parks, back in 2013, wrote this about reliability. Quote, Reliability as a property of necessarily inferential decision-making, must be maintained, end quote. Now, Parks goes on to summarize the dilemma we find ourselves in in schools. He says that teachers don't know enough about psychometric, end quote. Break. Jay Parks wrote back in 2013, quote, reliability as a property of necessarily inferential decision-making must be maintained, end quote. Now, Parks goes on to summarize the dilemma we find ourselves in in schools. 
He says that teachers don't know enough about psychometric best practices, nor do they do enough about them. However, he does jump to teachers' defense by saying it might be unfair to judge teachers against the the expectation, since a lot of teachers, many teachers, most teachers, have really not been given the opportunity to even learn that which they don't know. So it's hard to judge teachers against this idea that they don't know enough and don't do enough when they haven't been given the opportunity. We don't know what we don't know, right? So the bottom line for me is it's probably a good idea that we have as teachers at least some working knowledge of what validity and reliability represent. Okay, so so back to the missing evidence. Do I have enough is the question. That's the question. So when you look at evidence gathered, move away from the question of how many assignments or tasks is the student missing and move toward the idea of thinking what evidence is missing, like what samples are missing. Some of the missing tasks are redundant and you know it. They are. To have the students complete those redundant assignments is really an exercise in compliance. You know you have enough evidence for that learning or this particular standard or that category or strand. So to make the students complete yet one more task really does just speak to the issue of compliance. Now you might say, oh, but Tom, the other students had to do them. Yes, they did. But why is it okay to excuse the student on an extended illness, but not the student who's missing the assignment for, for other reasons? And again, don't give me the excused versus unexcused absence because now what you're talking about is behavioral competence or, or sort of social competence slipping into your grading decision, right? So if you're willing to have and say that you have enough evidence, even though you don't have all of the assignments done, that is either true or it's not true. Either you have enough evidence or you don't. And it doesn't matter why the assignments are missing. It just matters that you do or don't have enough evidence. This is the bigger issue. Are students completing tasks or are they providing evidence of learning? Now, of course, it's both to a point. But the question is, what lens are you using to examine your gradebook? So the question that matters the most at the end of the year, end of semester, etc., is do I have enough evidence to make an accurate determination and justify a passing grade? If the answer is yes, then the question would be, what is that grade or level? If the answer is no, we ask ourselves, what evidence is needed? Like, what evidence do I need to gather? And the second question, of course, would be, is there enough time? Do I have enough time to do this? Um, hopefully, we would be actively seeking that evidence long before we're pressed up against the end of the semester or the end of the school year. But, you know, it does happen. And, you know, some teachers will say to me, Tom, what, what do I do if a student hands me 15 assignments or 20 assignments or if I have seven students that hand me 15 assignments at the end of the semester? You know, those are situations where I think we're probably not doing enough during the school year to keep students current. And it's building up, building up, building up. And then we get to the end of the semester. I know there are individual circumstances that lead to that. But if that is a common pattern, that's probably an issue that needs to be dealt with earlier in the semester. And I talked a lot about that earlier in the year when I talked about redefining accountability. And, that, and that's something we can revisit going forward. So depending on the age and the grade of the student, we would respond from there. Do I have enough evidence? If I do, then what's the grade? If I don't, can I reconcile that? And if I don't get enough evidence, then we'd have to respond. And for our youngest grade levels and even up through middle school, it's likely students are going to you know, move to the next grade level because the research on retention is, is very clear. And, and of course, there might be exceptions to that based on the age and maturity of the student. But 
those would be the rare exceptions to the rule. They would not be the rule, and so we would move students to the next grade level, but that doesn't erase the fact that we were missing some essential evidence. So schools, individual teachers, uh, you know, school-based support teams, intervention teachers, we're, we're gonna have to talk about that and what that looks like for the individual student. Now at the high school level, you know, there, there are students that may need to repeat classes as they go forward. But again, that has to be a thoughtful decision. It's not just a case of, well, you're missing just one too many assignments. So you know what? You're going to have to repeat the whole class again. That just feels a little like an overreaction um, that we're going to hold a student back for an entire semester, make them repeat a class just because they were missing, you know, one or two too many assignments. Uh, that just just feels like it doesn't pass the common sense test. Look, again, repeating classes may be necessary, but let's make sure that it's necessary and that there isn't something we can do, you know, that maybe even into, maybe we can register them for the next science class, for example, in the second semester, and we can help them get caught up on uh, their grade nine science class at the first semester of next year so they can take their grade 10 level science class, you know, in the second semester. There's things we can do to be creative, and I know a lot of schools already do that. So the question really is, do I have enough evidence to make a reliable and valid judgment as to where this student is overall? That's really the question. It's not the question of how many tasks are missing or how many holes in my gradebook do I have. It's, do I have enough evidence to make a valid and reliable determination as to where this student is in their learning? Okay, as we close out today, just a reminder about the Achieve Institute coming virtually this August 16th through 18th. That's going to feature myself, Cassandra Erkins, Nicole Dimich, and Katie White. Uh, Solutiontree.com is where you'll find the details, and there's a link in the show notes to help you get there. Also, would encourage you to check out all the podcasts on the Teach Better Podcast Network. That's teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now, the summer series topics have been chosen thanks to everyone who voted. I went through and tabulated those, and the seven most popular topics were as follows, in, in no particular order. They were uh, universal design for learning, social-emotional learning, women in leadership, racial equity in schools, trauma-informed practices, standards-based grading, and indigenous education. So if you or someone you know or someone you work with would be a great guest for one of those topics, you know, and I really want to try to get some practitioners on as well, uh, let me know. Send me a message on Twitter, direct message, or, or an email would be great. Of course, I'm going to need some details about the work you've done and, and let me know, know sort of the details of, of some of the accomplishments, et cetera, that you, you found, but would love to, uh, to round out those roundtables for those topics this, this summer. So follow the podcast on Twitter for updates and, and to let me know if you would be or a colleague of yours would be a great guest for the summer series. That's at Tom Shimmer Pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well, at Tom Shimmer. Uh, it's Shimmer Education on Facebook. It's Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram. And of course, Tom Shimmer Podcast on YouTube as well. Um, also, again, email me uh, suggestions, questions for assessment corner, or anything related to the summer series. That's TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. Next week, my guest will be Ken O'Connor. I began this podcast with Tom Gusky. And I'm closing out before the summer series with Ken O'Connor. Ken and Tom are, without question, two of the biggest influences on me and my thinking around grading. So I'm really looking forward to that conversation next week. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. And if you like the podcast, please spread the word about the podcast to your friends or your colleagues. I would greatly appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.